So, um, <coughs> so what we're going to do is talk about, okay, we're going to talk, we're talking about this bracha of Harotze Bisteshuva, that Hashem wants, wants our tshuva. And this is going to incorporate some of the material from yesterday's share, which I sent you links to. So you can go either way with it. But um, that's because it, it kind of happened <coughs> naturally. So that's what it's going to be. And it's always a good time to hear about Hanukkah a week before Hanukkah. So, yeah. Okay. So what I'm going to start with is a very nice um, putting together of two ideas from the book Ha'aras Hatfila. So he says over here, first he quotes Rav Yitzchak Kutner in the Pachad Yitzchak on Yom Kippur, who points out that this bracha differs from other brachos in the series of bakashos. The other brachos say things like Chonin Hadas, Hashem grants Das. Um, Hanun, well, this is a funny one. Goal Yisrael, he redeems Israel. Rofe Cholamo Yisrael, he heals the sick. Mevarech Hashanim, he blesses the years. They're very active. They he calls it Lashon Peula. It's uh, they're they're expressed in terms of activity or action that Hashem acts upon the world in sending these various brachos. But this bracha ends with Harotzeb b'seshuva, who wants tshuva, not, um, ha, <laughs> he gives an example, hamachazir b'tshuva, who returns us in tshuva. In other words, not that he does the action, but that he wants it to happen. So we could say, well, there's no difference from the point of view of God, meaning whatever is his ratzon, that's what is, you know. But it is nonetheless different from the other ones, because all the other brachos don't say harotze bivracha and harotze birefua. You know, I mean, that would be the... All of them are expressed in terms of what actually comes to pass, that Hashem acts in the world, with the exception of this one, which is just that he wants it. <coughs> so... What he does is he, he then goes to the Ramchal, who says, well, what is teshuva? And we see There's a chesed of Hashem, which is teshuva. That when a person has, it's called akiras haratzon. If you uproot your will, meaning... Previously, you had a will, you had a desire for tray food. And somehow you managed to actually not just change your behavior, but change your will so that you don't want that anymore. You want what God wants. Or you want to be a person who keeps kosher. Or you want to be... So that the change happens. The deepest form of tshuva is when you change your will because that's... The fruits of the will are the actions. Actions are a late expression of what's going on within a person's will. It doesn't mean there isn't a value to trying to change according to your actions. You can do that, and it could be very effective. But the real deepest kind of tshuva, real tshuva, is what happens when a person changes their inner will. 
And when that happens, then the process of tshuva almost unfolds naturally, right? On the day when a person does tshuva, he recognizes his sin. He acknowledges it. He speaks it out loud. He understands how bad he's been, and he regrets it completely. He wishes he had never done it. He desires that he had never done that thing. It pains his heart with powerful pain that he already has done it, and he is determined to have abandoned that kind of action completely and to flee from it in the future. That's what happens when a person's will has changed. Because now the way that they look back at something that they previously had wanted (laughs) is, if only I could undo that. Okay, so if that's the case then, then the root of all of our actions is really in our will. Then tshuva, the the real tshuva then, is the akiras haratzon, the uprooting of our will. But our will is in our hands. That's our bechira. So Hashem doesn't put control on that, for the most part. On the results, yes. But hakob bidei shamayim chutz miyira shamayim. The way that you feel about it inside, that you have control over. So this bracha is not expressed in terms of Hashem making it happen. Only that Hashem wants it to be that way. And I just, I also wanted to point out that that, (coughs) there's a praise over here that is in parallel because then Hashem's will is our true is that we should do tshuva. In other words, Hashem's will is our will, not not that it should be what we want. Hashem's will is that our will should be in order, and our will is that it should be in accordance with His will. So there's a sort of this alignment here that we've talked about for Shemona Esrei, this idea that in Shemona Esrei we try and merge our will with God's will to the extent that we're able to achieve it. Tshuva is this incredible case of it where what does Hashem want? What he wants is that we should want what he wants. <laughs> There's this kind of the ratzon back and forth. And this aspect of ratzon um, is something that I saw in the Pachat Yitzchak. I, I do have copies of it because we used it in the shir yesterday. So if you want one. There's another one here somewhere. There's another one. Okay, so I wanted to look at this Pachat Yitzhak. Yesterday when we did it in the other shear, in the Tuesday shear, um, I just did the parts with the flags, but to, uh, today I was hoping we could do the whole piece because there's some other parts of it that are amazing, but that over in that class, it's a 45-minute class, not a one-hour class, so it's much tighter for time, and so I just kept it only to the one point. But um, I think over here, this is a nice opportunity to see a little bit more about it. So Rav Huttner says like this, this is the first mimer in Hanukkah. And, and this, again, coming back to this idea of the, this complementary idea of the Ratzon. Yeduim heim hadvarim ki yeshnam divrei Torah shenitnu li kasev, v'yeshnam divrei Torah shalom nisnu li kasev. It's well known that Chazal have taught us that there are words of Torah that are fit to be written and words of Torah that are not fit to be written. 
Okay, so in, uh, generally speaking, what he's talking about is this Torah Shabbat and this Torah Shabbat Torah Shabbat is not meant to be written. Okay. So this di- distinction is relevant, it appears, only to things that are called Torah. He says, now we have this interesting case, though. We have, and we, we actually came across this at least once in the last couple of years going into Purim, that it says Esther is referred to as Ayala Tashachar, the morning star. Why is she compared to the morning star? Just like the morning star heralds the end of the night, and, and it's a beautiful muscle, so you think about it and then it's confusing, so we're not going to explain it. <laughs> so too, <laughs> Esther heralds the end of all the Nisim. No, it is a very strange comparison because the end of the Nisim should be the beginning of the night, not the end of the night, one would think, right? So she's the last of the miracles. So then the Chazal say, hang on, because we understand that Esther is in a time when things were not these wide open miracles to the greatest part, so that's kind of the last miracle. So then Chazal say, hang on, what about Hanukkah? I mean, that's a, maybe a more blatant miracle. And even if you say, well, some of it was sort of, you had to be at the Beis HaMikdash to see it. But nonetheless, everybody knew about it. And the miracle of the battles was also miraculous. And all right, what about Hanukkah? And the answer is that, yeah, except that Purim was the last of the miracles that could be written down. Hanukkah, you can't write it. Okay, that, that's how this Gemara proceeds. And in fact, Megillus Esther is part of the canon, so to speak, of Tanakh. It's the last book of Tanakh. Once that was ratified into Tanakh, there is no more adding of books to Tanakh. But Hanukkah, although there were things that were written down at the time to talk about the history of what was going on, especially by then you already have, you know, it's the times of the Greeks and the times of the Romans and people very interested in history, but that doesn't become part of Tanakh. There's no curse. I'm sorry. Ha- Purim was way before. Purim right? was way before. We have oh, a kids, so we have a kids tape where they say, okay, so which comes first, Hanukkah or Purim? So the kid says, Hanukkah. <laughs> so the Rebbe says, no, Purim. So he says, no, Hanukkah, because Hanukkah vacation comes before Purim vacation. Oh. <laughs> so the Rebbe says, no. But Esther <laughs> is in the time between the first base of Mikdash and the second base of Mikdash. And Hanukkah happens space. in the middle of the second base of Mikdash already, or uh-huh. part of the way through. But so. even in my brain, I'm thinking. Because during your school uh-huh. year, Hanukkah so comes first. But in actual fact, okay, Purim comes first. Okay. okay, so Purim came first, and it was written down. But the, the events that took place, the miracles of Hanukkah, are not given to be written down. It's the same terminology that's used in terms of there's words of Torah that are given to be written down, and words of Torah that are not given to be written down. Pine no seha inyan bekan. So in other words, the topic they're talking about here is not words of Torah as words of Torah, but words of Torah that are describing the events that happened, the miracles of the Jew, that happened to the Jewish people. These miracles, are they fit to be written down or not? Are they suited? Not fit. Are they suited to be written? He said, so on a simple level, it's difficult to understand what is the relevance of applying that distinction 
of is it Torah that's meant to be written down or Torah that's not to the miracles of Hanukkah and Purim? What, what, why would you use that way of just dividing up and apply it to the miracles? When that distinction is talking about Devrei Torah, so what does that have to do with the application to the miracles? What it certainly means, the intention is, that the Divrei Torah that relate to the miracle of Hanukkah, just like there are Divrei, you know, the book of Esther is not just telling the miracle. It is Divrei Torah. That the words of Torah that relate to the miracle of Hanukkah are not given to be written down. They are not part of the Tanakh. And that this comparison is brought in the context of the dawn. So this is sort of the, the night and the day versus the miracles and the events of the miracles. One thing that we can see here, however, is that the distinction, the distinction between suitable for writing down and not suitable for writing down, although we learn it from Divrei Torah, is not limited to Divrei Torah, and in fact applies to the events through which Hashem is performing these miracles as well. Not just to the Torah that's written, but also to God's communication with us that's not written down. And then we say, so what of this gets written and what doesn't? There's a kind of a broader concept going on over here. But tochen hadvarim kachu, this is the meat of it. And this is a pasuk from Hosea. Echtov lo rube torasi, kmo zar nechshavu. I shall write most of my Torah down, and then they will be considered like strangers. The prophecy of Hosea tells us that if the words of the Torah Shabbat Peh get written down, there is the potential for that to cause a state of strangerness, of being like a czar, like an, a foreigner in the Jewish people. For the Jewish people to become like foreigners. Torasi, I shall write down most of my Torah, They'll be considered like strangers. For I guess foreign. A stranger doesn't just mean someone you don't know. It means someone who comes from somewhere else. Strange. They're not weird. really no no no. No, it doesn't mean no. weird. No, no. It just means I know because it can also Distance. mean like a it's they come from far away. So they're not someone who's an old familiar friend. They're not part of the family. Yeah. They're a visitor. And in a medrash that is brought and quoted by the Tosfos in Gemara and Gitin Dav Samech, Esau, it tells, that in the future, the nations of the world will write down the Torah. And if the Torah Shabbat Peh were also to be written down, then the nations of the world would also have written that down. 
And if that were to happen, the Jewish people would be considered like strangers. Okay, now in fact, um, which I imagine he'll say, but in fact, under the Greek domination, you had what this, the story of Talmai, who gathered together 72 sages and put them into separate rooms and locked them up and said, don't come out till you've translated the Torah into Greek. Right? This is part of... Right, Asara Beteves, that's part of the three days of darkness that descended in Asara Beteves, is this darkness, which is always associated with Yavan, that was brought into the world through the translation of the Torah to make it accessible to the world. And the Medrash is saying that will happen in the future, because the Medrash far predates the Greeks, right? So the Medrash is saying one day the nations of the world are going to come and they're going to translate the Torah for themselves. They're going to write it down for themselves. And if the Torah Shabal Peh were written down, they would do that too. Meaning if there had been a Gemara, which there wasn't so in the time of the family. Greeks, they would have translated that too. And that would have had a result. In some way, had the oral Torah been turned into something that was then a piece of classic literature yeah. for all the nations that would have affected us in some way. That, that's what's puzzling. Okay? That it affect, it's not that, oh, this is our little secret and it's private. And if they find out, you know, yeah. then somehow it will leak out. That doesn't seem to be the, the issue. There's something about Tarshabal Peh that <laughs> converts us from being strangers to being family. And that goes the opposite direction if it's out in the open, so, like in so to speak. Generation when you know, you've got art school, is that what's happening? Well, that's certainly something that people were very concerned about. People were, it's been the whole time, people were ter- terribly concerned about the writing down of the Mishnah. Mm. <laughs> very concerned. Mm-hmm. And then very concerned about writing down the Gemara. Because at least with the Mishnah, so it's kind of notes, you have to have someone to explain to you, but the Gemara is, is the explanation of the Mishnah. So what are you doing right now? I mean, we sort of look at that and say, well, it's hardly obvious just because it's in the Gemara. We need someone to teach it to us. But at the time, right, that was like, okay, so you're writing all the explanations down. Now what? Right, this is a real well, crisis. He's going to address this. a misinterpretation, totally. He's, maybe. Right, he didn't say that that was the problem. Oh. Right? He's not actually discussing what is wrong with writing down Torah oh. Shabbat. Okay. He's just saying there is such a concept. There is such a thing that it shouldn't be written down. And now he's trying to understand and what is one aspect of that concept, one aspect of that concept, which is hinted to by Hosea, is that there is an effect of this thing called whether they're strangers or not. Okay. If we shall look deeper into the words of this Medrash, we will see that it comes out, that the closing words of this Medrash bring out explicitly what it's really referring to is a statement, the same idea that is made in a statement of Chazal, where they say, Hashem only Karas uh, Bris, He only set His covenant. He sealed His covenant with the Jewish people through the words of Torah Shabbat Peh alone. This is a Chazal. Chazal say, how did God make his covenant with the Jewish people? I just want to point out here, a covenant always has 
two sides. That's why the word karas, cutting, okay? In English, you have sort of the equivalent when you say to cut a deal. That's where the language kind of, you don't say to cut a covenant, but you do say to cut a deal. But in Torah, it's the, the verb that goes to making a bris, a covenant, is karas, cutting. Why? Because you take one thing, you slice it into two parts. There's two sides, right? So in the bris, bein habasarim, Avraham divides the animals and crosses between them, and Hashem sends a pillar of smoke to also cross between them. Because both sides are taking on a commitment, right? A bris could be violated if either side does not fulfill. It's like a contract. Either side doesn't fulfill their promise. It's got to always have two sides. There's no such thing as a one-sided bris. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Hashem sealed his covenant with the Jewish people through the words of Torah Shabbat Peh. Shenamar, as the verse says, karasi Through these words I have made with you a covenant. Klomar kol bris kolelis besocha gam es minias shel kol nichnasim shel habris. Okay. And I'm not sure exactly how he got from here to here, but he says every covenant includes within it not just the inclusion of the people who are making the covenant, but also the exclusion of everyone who is not entering into the covenant. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know how he got to that over here. He just like said it as the next sentence. But we have seen that idea with Kedusha. And kiddushin, right? Where kiddusha always means restraint and holding back. And the easiest example is kiddushin, like a marriage. That in saying, hareat mikudeshesli, when a woman becomes mikudeshes to a man, she becomes permitted to him, right? Was it, has the bracha go? Also lanu es ha-arayos, lanu es ha-nesuos lanu, right? She becomes permitted to the husband, but she also becomes forbidden to everyone else. I mean, the covenant of the Kiddushin, it includes the husband and the wife, but it excludes everyone else. It's not, it's doing two things at once. Okay. The Gambris HaTorah Shekaras HaKadosh Baruch So this covenant that Hashem made with the Jewish people, Im Yisrael, Kolelas Besocha, it includes by definition within it, Minias Shaychos Kazel, an exclusion in the same way. In the same way that it includes by virtue of it including, it excludes. What is excluded, it's not maybe what we would think, is the writing down of the words of Torah Shabbat Peh. Somehow, the fact that we say we do write down Torah Shabbat Peh, we don't write down Torah Shabbat Peh, corresponds to Hashem saying, I'm making a special covenant with you, and that includes you and excludes others. How, how do you, what's the connection? Which covenant is that? Yeah, okay. So, so now he's going to go there. There is another point to emphasize here. Ki birchas ha-Torah, when we say birchas ha-Torah in the morning, I'm going to quote the Gura, opens with two ideas. Um, here, actually it ends with two ideas. Mm-hmm. Who chose us from all the nations and gave us his Torah. Why two? 
So he quotes the Gra, Mefarash Kasav Hagra, explicitly the Gra has written, It's referring to two different stages in chronological order. Habechira, and we actually talked about this either this year or last year before Shavuos. Habechira, Himasha, Nemar, Lomoshe, Besheni, Lesivan, Vatam, Tiu, Mamaches, Kohanim, Begoy Kadosh. First is Asher Bacharbanu, Hashem choosing us. That's what's known as Yom Hamiyuchas. Now he, 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 he puts it on the second of Sivan with the giving of Torah on the sixth of Sivan. It's, I think Yom Hamiyuchas is generally considered on the third of Sivan with the giving of the Torah on the seventh. It's two different opinions. It depends when you're saying that the Torah was given. But, but just before the three days of preparation for Matan Torah, the Shloshes Yumei Hagabalah, there's three days, right? They've got to wash their clothes, and they're gathered around the mountain already and waiting for the Torah. The day before those three days, Hashem said, Atem tihiyuli mamleches kohanim kadosh. You shall be for me a nation of kohanim, a holy people. That's when we get called Am Segula. A nation that is treasured. The Hanesina, the giving, Nasan Lanu es Torah. So he is four days later when Hashem said, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. That's a very, very interesting insight. That there was a covenant that the events of Har Sinai, by the way, it helps you understand Dayenu, which happens less often than saying Berchos Torah, but Dayenu, right? If he had brought us before Har Sinai and not given us the Torah, Dayenu. Really? <laughs> what, what are you doing there? Like waiting outside for somebody who never shows up? But a lot happened at Har Sinai. Getting the Torah was a very big part of it. But even before we got the Torah, Hashem made us his chosen people. So the covenant with the Jewish people was made on the second of Sivan, not on Shavuos. Before the actual fact of Matan Torah, as it is, I mean, it's explicit in the verses. You can read it right there. Parshas Yisrael, they're standing there and they gather around the mountain and all this happens and then they wait for three days and then it's Matan Torah. And based on the idea that that covenant with God is a covenant of Torah Shebal Peh, Right? Hashem, Chazal said, Hashem made a covenant with the Jewish people with Torah Shabbat Peh alone. And you have to say, like, what is that Chazal talking about? How can you say that it's Torah Shabbat Peh alone when it's Anochi Hashem Elokecha and the Aseras Hadibros and Moshe getting the Luchos and going for 40 days to get it written down, right? Like, isn't that written Torah? That, where's the oral Torah? And he's showing us the oral Torah is when Hashem said this to us, but there's nothing written down. Okay, we didn't have a written Torah yet. So there was a covenant that was made through the words of Torah without anything having been written down. And so just like that which includes, also by virtue of including excludes, so that covenant is this, you could say is the sort of um, spiritual or intellectual source of the concept that there are words of Torah that are not meant to be written down. There's a, is, there's an aspect of the giving of the Torah. This is so so um, so not taught. It, it, it's not. It's so. It, it's not taught yeah. in general that that it's like 
almost shocking that right. I never heard it and that other people never like right it's not an unknown no. oh well, thank I'm god saying. for footners like, here but, I know, but it's, it's not it's to... not an unknown thing that words of Torah like people know there's such a thing as oral Torah I and know. that the Mishnah was written down, but that that was like a, an extreme case to do it. I'm saying it's not unknown, no. but this connection yeah, is very, something very is new to me known. too, okay? Hare Nimsa, so he's saying this, this concept that there's a relationship with Hashem that's through Torah Shabal Peh that is really best not written down. You can kind of start to even just get a sort of a you know, your spider sense tingling about why if it were written down, that would somehow make us into strangers. If we became something that's a special nation through words of Torah that were not written down, then there's a kind of a hit that that takes if that gets written down. You can even without understanding it, we can kind of get a sense as to how that would be connected. Mm-hmm. So the iser, it comes out that this prohibition of words of Torah Shabbat Peh, you are not permitted to put them into writing. That prohibition predates all the other prohibitions of the Torah. There is no mitzvah of the 613 mitzvahs that says, thou shalt not write down oral law. However, the prohibition to write down oral law precedes the giving of the written law. It's there from before. Velo'od, not only that, it doesn't only precede the prohibitions of the Torah, it precedes the giving of the Torah at all, of the written Torah. The omek hakavana bazehu, the deeper meaning of this is, that the prohibition of writing down the words of Torah Shabal Peh is not just one detail, one prohibition amongst hundreds of prohibitions of the Torah. It's actually something that shapes the covenant of Hashem with the Jewish people. Bekitzer, in short, In short, the prohibition of writing down the words of Torah Shabbat Peh forms a part not of the written Torah, which kind of makes sense, but actually is part of the forming of the covenant of Torah. Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim is part of birchos ha'torah, but it's the, what he's calling here the bris of Torah, not the matan Torah. Harbe Yoser, far more than it is relevant to the body of the Torah itself. Okay. Let me just see if we're going to try and fit. <laughs> I guess that's what it's all for. We learned that, right? Everything Rambam says, everything in Torah is for that. Okay. So he says, you, this also helps us understand the way the Mishnah is organized, as Chazal have taught us that just like the organization of the, of the Mishnah is in such a way, are all the cars moved? I don't know. Wrong. This side Wrong. is... I hope it, side maybe is it's okay. not too late. Does not. she have a key? Okay, like and you have a key here, your car's on the wrong side. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And you got to hop on it because... Oh, I would be surprised. It's probably too late, but you never know. Once in a while, 
they come later. I don't know how they could always be in our street at 901. How are they on everyone's street at the same time? I don't know. Must have entire flocks, you know, that just move like from one street to another. That's probably why, yeah. Okay. So he says the order, the way the Mishnah is ordered is that it doesn't appear to be very ordered. I mean, there's, it's, it's in an order, and there are six siddharim, but if you look into it more deeply, you see that there are some places where it seems to use very few words to say anything. You know, Shalva could probably get your key for you. <laughs> so bad to have it running around. There's some places where it's very sparse in its language, and other places where it's very rich in its language, and you don't understand. Like, how come over here it goes into detail, and over there it says almost nothing, and things like that. And our Chazal have taught us, because even though it became permitted to write down the Torah Shabbat Peh at that point, because it was in danger of things being lost completely, it's Mishum Eis Lasos Lashem Hefiru Torah Secha, you undermine the Torah because it is a time to save the Torah, they nonetheless made an effort to write it down in a way that would be, that would still require that you learn it from someone else. Mm-hmm. That was the mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. The point was to put just enough down to make sure that someone who knows won't forget what to teach, and that someone who has learned it can review what they have been taught, but not enough to let you just figure it out on your own because then it's just written down. So they left it in, uh, intentionally in a way that it would have to be Torah Shabbat Peh even after it was written down. So that even the written would require the assistance of the oral. So that the writing down would not take the plate. We'll just leave it there. At least you have a spot for tomorrow. (laughs) In the end, the writing down cannot replace receiving the Torah from mouth to ear. And these things are an important fundamental in the way that Torah Shabbat Peh has been turned into writing, you have to always understand that whoever's writing it down has the goal of not replacing direct teaching. From this, we see a similar point to what we said above about the prohibition of writing things down that are Baal Peh. Because if this Isser was just one of the other Isserim of the Torah, then there would be no room to say, well, I'm going to keep this mitzvah sort of. I'll write it down just a little bit. Meaning, either you would say, it is time to serve Hashem, so you're going to temporarily suspend a mitzvah for the sake of protecting the whole Torah, in which case you don't do it halfway, Okay, like Eliyahu putting a, putting a mezbeach on Har HaKarmel, even though there's a perfectly good mishkan still functioning, right? You're not allowed to go build a bama over on Har HaKarmel. This was an ace lasos Hashem, a time to use that in order to serve Hashem. Okay, so either you do it or you don't do it, but you don't do it a little bit and sort of like try and minimize the damage. That, that doesn't make sense halachically. Meniyaz haksiva shal devri Torah Torah. The, the restraint from writing down words of Torah Shabbat Peh relates, is associated with the covenant of Torah, which predates the body of Torah. And therefore, the Isser, 
of it, even when it was permitted, nonetheless, they make the effort not to impact that shape of the covenant. Meaning, it's not that it's a written down prohibition. <laughs> By definition, it's not written down, because, like, right. But rather, the goal was to maintain the integrity of the covenant of Torah, which is a covenant of Torah Shabbal Peh. Even when it was felt that you have to compromise it in some way, it was nonetheless done in such a way as to preserve it as best as possible. Okay, so this distinction between the Klolius Bris Torah, this general thing of Bris Torah, and the specificity of the dinim of the Torah, the halachos of the Torah themselves, also plays out in Hilchos Mesiras Nefesh. The halachos of when do you have to give up your life? How much do you endanger yourself? This is in fact the same principle that governs two kinds of Mesiris Nefesh that are demanded of us. One kind of Mesiris Nefesh is the three big Averas. Uh, saving a life, like not murdering, not doing a vodazara, and not committing immoral acts. And those three, rather than be forced into them, it would be better to die. Obviously, if you can buy your way out or you can run away, then you would do that. But rather than violate those three. But there's another kind of Mesiris Nefesh that's discussed in the Gemara and Baba Kama, which is a time of Shmad, a time when people are trying to detach Jews from their religion, from their covenant with God. When that happens, then you have to give your life for any, anything, no matter how small. The example in the Gemara is a red shoelace. So if red shoelaces are what people wear to identify themselves as idol worshipers, and then there is an effort to force Jews to wear red shoelaces to honor the idols, then even though, I mean, who cares what color your shoelaces are? There's certainly no halachas about shoelaces, right? Well, it becomes a statement that I'm not Jewish. Mm-hmm. And that statement is a violation of the bris Torah, not of any particular halacha. And yet it demands the full degree of mysterious nefesh. I actually have over here Rav Hirsch on mysterious nefesh. Uh-oh, I did. Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, maybe. Right. It was chapter 9. I guess I didn't flag it in the end. That gets very difficult. Oh, yeah. You know, like in, in Paris today, you know, there are people who... Don't right. So one thing is not afraid of being right, but it's Jewish and right. So that's a that's attacked. a scary thing, but nobody is telling you you have to do something to undermine the connection. Meaning you are hiding it rather than someone telling you to undermine it. So I'm just looking over here. Rev Hirsch talks about kind of the broad outlines. And, of course, he gives it the context of the hashkafa of what you would think about that would 
relate. So he says about the three the three biggies of Gilui If you're told to break any commandment of the Torah with the exception of those big three, under threat of being put to death, then you should break it, provided you have first sought, but without success, even with the offer of all your earthly fortune, to buy your release from sin and preserve your life further to serve your God. Meaning you shouldn't run toward breaking it. <laughs> the goal is to avoid it, even if you have to give up all your money for it. But your life, you don't have to give up for, for doing that. If somebody stands over and says, put on red shoelaces or I'll shoot, put on red shoelaces. Like, you know, that, as long as they don't have some other meaning. Mm-hmm. Violate Shabbos or I'll shoot. So okay, if you can right. buy them off or if you can run or if you can distract them or shoot them first, but if you can't, so you violate the Shabbos. Okay. So this is a distinct, Rav Hutner is saying that these two sets of halachos correspond. So this is corresponding to the question of whether you do or don't violate the halachos of the Torah corresponds to the giving of the Torah on Shavuos, which are the specific written down laws. Here's what God says, do this mitzvah, don't do this prohibition. And then how do you handle it if someone tries to force it? Okay, then you should break it. If your assailant, however, is not thinking of his own profit, and only wants to make you break the law, then account your life as nothing in the face of the lightest sin, were it even the infringement of a custom which is peculiar to Israel. Hmm. If the purpose of the person telling you to break the law is just to cause you to destroy, it says, even secretly, at a time when a tyrannical power is trying to destroy Israel's Torah by violence, then even if it's just a little custom, how, you, how Jews tie their shoelaces. In this case, God says to you, sacrifice your life. It's, it's unbelievable. Why would you have two different sets like that? And that's what Huttner is saying. It's the same principle. Because one of them, it's not the degree of the halacha. It's is the purpose to undermine your covenant with God. Anything that seeks to undermine the covenant with God becomes a Yahari Yavor. Becomes what? Uh, rather die than oh. violate. But if it's a question of a person who has been captured by pirates, right, or by the Romans, and sold into slavery, and the boss says, you will cook me my food. I don't care what day of the week it is, right? So he's not doing that to stop you from being Jewish. He's doing it to fulfill his own tithes, or he wants his work, or he wants his money's worth, or whatever. Then a person would comply rather than die. Okay, okay. But if it becomes a matter of violate the Shabbos just for the sake of, I want to prove that I can take Jews away from God, then no matter how small it is, suddenly it becomes a Yaharik Yavor. That has happened, and certainly Hanukkah is the classic time of that. Show in the congregation of your brethren that you love God more than life. Spur them on to similar love. Show the madman that his power is unable to force Israel into disloyalty to his God. Show him that Israel's sons and daughters mock at his puny strength. They will expire and still remain true to their God. Okay. So coming back to Rav Hutner, just because that was like a nice explanation of those two different sets. 
Al kein mesiras nefesh zo shall erkasad demesani. Einenu mesiras nefesh al dinei mitzvah shal Torah. So the kind of mesiras nefesh that's even unto a shoelace, that is not mesiras nefesh that has to do with the practical details of the halacha and the mitzvos. It is a prohibition that is general and it is much stricter because the person is trying to get you to violate Judaism as a whole. And that Judaism as a whole, now you're not in the realm of Matan Torah anymore and Torah Shebechtav. You're in the realm of Bris Torah, Covenant of Torah, and Torah Shebaopeh. And the, this is Mesiris Nefesh that comes through the unique place of the Jewish people amongst the other nations. You start to see how this becomes really the battleground of the Yavanim, right? Yavanim didn't care what you worshipped as long as you also worshipped their things, right? They just added, right? Wherever you go, you conquer, you take the Yavanazara, you add it to the Pantheon, and you move on. They didn't care, right? You want to have a temple? That's fine. It's a nice building. Beautiful. We love the architecture. We're just going to break these holes that say that Jewish people could go in one place and non-Jewish people could only go in another place. The idea that you can go, you can have a Christmas tree or you can (laughs) celebrate, you can wish everybody Merry Christmas. You can do that. Right. Why not? Why not? Right. As long as it's inclusive. The idea that you would say that what you do is different or exclusive, that's what bothered the Yavanim. And that's what bothered the, the Jews who emulated the Yavanim as well. Okay, in other words, this is hitting, this is seeking to undermine the covenant that God made with the Jewish people, the bris of Torah. In this way, the Mesiris Nefesh for mitzvos in a time of gezeros hashmad, of destructive decrees, meaning decrees that seek to destroy the Jewish people as a people, as a Torah-keeping people, are differentiated at their root from the Mesiris Nefesh for the three big averos, which you know, it's only for the sake of saving your life, you would do anything else, but you wouldn't do those things. If it is a situation where we are judging and poskening about Averos or prohibitions according to the details as they are taught to us in the Torah, then there are shiorim. How, how, how much is it? How little is it? Is it by force? Is it voluntary? Is it temporary? Right? The paskening a halacha. In chayuve mesiris nefesh. How much danger? Good morning. How much danger is a person obligated to put themselves into? It could be you're, you're obligated to give up all your money, but not your life. Could be you're obligated to give up twenty percent of your money, but not all your money. It's different things, right? If we're making a judgment, a psak about the general concept of bris Torah, the shiurim and the midos are not even relevant. Mm-hmm. It's that, the, the written down, right? The, those th- that's not the point. Like a time when the goal is to remove people from religion, then that chiv of mesiras nefesh just like bursts through all the other boundaries of any other normal halachic consideration, even if What's at stake is only something that appears to be very small, like a shoelace. Nonetheless, don't violate it. Okay, so this brings us back to the beginning of what we were teaching about. 
when we were t when he was talking about the idea that there's some things that can be written down and some things that can't be written down, and how does that affect the writing down the description of a nace that happened? Right? We said the contrast between Purim and Hanukkah, for example, because this is beemes the gather of the nace Hanukkah that cannot be written down. He says this principle that we've been talking about is in fact, as it said at the beginning, what was the original source? The original source was how come. Um, Esther is compared to the morning star because it is the end of the Nisim. And then they say, but what about Hanukkah, which happened later? The answer is yes, but Hanukkah you can't write down. It's not part of the written Torah. Right? Esther becomes part of the written Torah. Hanukkah doesn't. Heim heim hadvarim. It is these very same things. that The same principle has been functioning throughout this teaching. The Chiddush, the new, the new, I mean, I guess it wasn't new, but like this Chiddush, what is brought into our education in the yearly cycle of holidays, that is taught to us through the Mesiris Nefesh, the willingness to give up their lives in the generation of the Chashmonaim, who's that? It is this, Kimasu Nafsham, that they gave up their lives. Now, in the end, they went running down the hill to give up their lives, right? waving swords and knowing every breath was their last and they turned around and they had won. But they didn't think that was going to happen. From their point of view, they're giving up their lives. They were not giving up their lives to fulfill God's will that was written in the Torah. Do this mitzvah, do that mitzvah. They were giving up their lives on the principle of the Jewish people have been chosen by God and have a unique relationship with him. And you, got, you we are not going to stand by while you cut breaches in the wall. They didn't even take down the wall. <laughs> right? Just the fact that you're trying to make breaches in the wall. Just the fact, right, they told the Jews they have to carve on the horns of an ox, which is what you use for a baby bottle, we have no share in the God of Israel. Now, is the milk trafe? Milk doesn't become trafe that way. So what's the problem? The problem is they are undermining, they seek to undermine the relationship between Jewish people and God. The Hainu Abris Torah, they were giving their lives for the covenant of Torah, as we have said. How perfectly and beautifully it all fits. That the events of the time of Hanukkah are not permitted to be entered into the written Torah. The canon of the written Torah. It says it's exactly, yeah. It's, this is exactly the point, and that's what Chazal were saying when they said, yeah, well, but Purim is the last one you could write down. You couldn't write down about Hanukkah. It could become a holiday with halachos, and it still doesn't get written down. Shekin ko'atzmo, because the whole inner, the whole essence of the, of the revelation of this time of Hanukkah is specifically about this point of Mesiris Nefesh, for the sake of the covenant of Torah, which is the covenant of Torah Shabbat Peh, which is something that doesn't get written down and is not about the details of the halachas one way or the other. Asher shlila shaksav, he he befol That in the same way that a relationship, the covenant of the Jews to the Jew, to Hashem, by, by making that relationship, it excluded others from its relationship. God could have his own relationship with other people. But that relationship is a relationship. It means other people aren't in it, just like a marriage. 
In the same way, the giving of the oral Torah is an exclusion of writing it down, which would make it written Torah. So he says this is, that, that is the putting it into action. If you would write down and have a Megillah of Hanukkah, it would be exactly opposed to everything that was happening and everything you're learning and the whole principle that was governing the decisions that led to the Hashmaran to do what they were trying to do. In fact, the Mishnah itself does not write down very much about Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? when, when they were writing down the bits of the oral law that had to be written in order that it should not be forgotten, Hanukkah doesn't really get in there. It's only mentioned, like, ki'im agav. It's, it's mentioned only incidentally to other things. If a camel is carrying straw, and the straw catches fire because somebody left the lantern outside, then the person who left the light outside has to pay the camel owner for the straw that got destroyed. Unless it's a Hanukkah candle, which you're meant to put outside. Okay, and then I guess people who are got their camels out there, should have known better. It's Hanukkah. You don't go walking around with straw all over the place. Okay, there's candles outside. But that's, that's a very incidental way of mentioning, by the way, there are candles on Hanukkah and you put them outside. Okay, it's related to other topics. Because the forming of writing down the Mishnah was done with a careful eye to preserving the nature of it as Torah Shabbat Peh. And Hanukkah, of all things, is, an, is a prime case of pure Torah Shabbat Peh. So you're really not going to put it down. <laughs> okay? Whereas other parts of Torah Shabbat Peh are part of Torah Shabbat Peh, Hanukkah is representative of Torah Shabbat Peh. Okay. So even after the Mishnah was written, they were leaving this place by leaving out that which has to be left out and putting in that which has to be put in. And with the candles of Hanukkah, we come to this completely. The light of the candle of Hanukkah is the light that was revealed by the Mesiris Nefesh of the Hashmonaim. It's the light that is revealed by Torah Shabbat Peh when you refrain from putting it down in words when you refrain from writing it down with, in, in script, there's a light, <laughs> there's a light that is redeemed. This is before tape recorders. There's a light that is, redeemed, that is revealed that the letters themselves would hide. It's a little bit reminiscent of what we learned about with Olam, right? The world that reveals and hides God. When you give something a tangible form, it reveals it. But at the same time, it's very limiting. So Torah Shabbat Peh and Hanukkah is a time for revelation of the light of Torah Shabbat Peh, but that is a time, right, and that is the beginning of the era. The beginning of the era of Torah Shabbat Peh is Hanukkah. After this, you have the times of the Mishnah, you have, right? I mean, that's really what you're going into. That is that revelation. And this light pushes away the effect of Yavon, the Greeks who came to darken the eyes of the Jewish people, right? They're always, it's always associated with Choshech. One of the ways they did this was by translating, right? Trying to translate the words of the Torah. Which is what the Medrash warned about. Someday, they're going to write the Torah down 
for their own language and their own use. And if they would do that with Torah Shabbat Peh, the Jews would become like strangers. We'd become strangers to God. And we'd go back to a state before we have a special relationship. Okay, so that is the Pachat Yitzchak, which is an amazing, amazing piece. Um, it's a little bit late. I, I was going to include another whole section. I'm not going to, but it's on the recording that I sent yesterday, so that's okay. And it's the bulk of it, meaning I didn't do as much from the Bachat Yitzchak, so they will work together neatly, mm-hmm. and you, you. Will, you will see over there how they fit together. Um, I did want to end, though, with this, with this one other idea. Um, Rav Hirsch and Charev in talking about Hanukkah and Purim. So with regard to Hanukkah, he mentions there's a history, right? There was Torah, there were decrees against Torah and Shabbos and bris milah and everything was death penalties and idols and all kinds of things going on. But that's not really the story of Hanukkah. That's the backstory of Hanukkah. The story of Hanukkah is that then, when the faithful had fallen, when the weak were beginning to falter, and when all that spelt Israel seemed lost, this is where the Hanukkah story begins. Okay. So I just want to like point out, as always, like Rav Hirsch, he's not the written Torah, <laughs> but he's very particular in the way he says things. He's usually paraphrasing something else. And what you have over here is people are falling because they're being killed, but people are also weakening. You have Jewish people, right, who are joining the gymnasiums. There are descriptions of the Kohanim who were dropping what they were doing in the middle of the Avodah so they could run and look over the wall or just pop outside and check what was going on in that wrestling gym arena that was built just below the Temple Mount, right? They wanted to see what was going on. There were people who were pulling the foreskin back because they didn't want to look circumcised. It wasn't just, oh, you're forbidden to have a bris milah. It was, we'd rather fit in. Mm-hmm. We'd rather look like others, not only under duress. This is weak beginning to falter when all that spelt Israel seemed lost. That definition of the Jewish people as being definable and recognizable amongst the nations, that was at risk. Then arose Mattathias, <laughs> the son of Yochanan, the Kohen Gadol, and his sons. He did not count the number of those who were like-minded. He had faith in the Spirit of God who endows the Spirit with victory over ruthless violence. He rose up to fight against this devastating frenzy and caused the weakness of the faithful to be victorious, completely victorious over the violence of the presumptuously arrogant. And now, he, he makes a very specific point here and he'll emphasize it again. He says, that is the story of Hanukkah, which is what we've been talking about, right? When the name of Israel appears like it's going to be lost as an identifiable shape and organism, then this man stood up with his family and did something. And he didn't count how many people will join him. It was very few. It grew over time, but it was, I mean, 
When you say Matis Yo and his five sons, this is a very, very small group to be starting with. And just as God watched over the security of the spirit of Israel amid the violence and rage and caused the light of Israel to be rekindled by the flaming spirit which still shone pure in the breast of one man, so did he declare by a visible symbol that in time of desolation he watches over and is the spirit of Israel. As soon as the tyrants were banished, the land cleansed and the temple purged of the idolatrous abominations, the temple lamp, the telling symbol of God-created spiritual light of Israel, was rekindled. So this idea of light that is revealed without being bounded and defined was lit, but only one cruise of oil enough to last one day was found still undefiled. And what Rav Hirsch is saying is, do you know why that's the miracle of Hanukkah? You know, we always have this discussion. Is the miracle of Hanukkah about the war or is the miracle of Hanukkah about the oil, right? Those are kind of the two. Refresh is saying, you don't get it. They're related. The miracle of oil is Hashem's response to the miracle of the war. The miracle of the war wasn't really that we won. The real miracle of the battle of the Jews against the Yavanim was that you could have one person stand up and from him you could kindle the spirit of the nation. And therefore, Hashem put that in a new miracle. He said, you know, you want to know what it feels like for me to see you behaving like that? It's when you want to light a menorah and there's only one little bit of oil. And you find that from that little bit of oil, you can kindle an entire menorah for as long as is necessary to build up what you need to fuel it to go forward. You can have a feeling of what I see when I see you. Only one cruise of oil, enough to last one day, was found still undefiled. But lo, he who watches over Israel's spiritual light caused it to last for eight whole days until fresh oil was prepared. This sign our ancestors grasped fully. They understood what Hashem was telling them. They understood that Hashem was saying, that's how I see you. They raised it to the meaningful celebration of the days of remembrance which they instituted in commemoration of this event. Each year when the Hanukkah season recurs, lights are kindled in every home of Israel and by every son of Israel. Right, this is a halacha, ner ish uveso. It, you, there is a custom of lighting in shul, but that does not fulfill the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. The mitzvah of lighting of menorah is putting the pieces together. A candle for every person. It, it's putting together the two miracles, the miracle of the individual and the miracle of the oil. And each person associating himself with a candle. Lights are kindled in every home of Israel by every son of Israel. It doesn't mean son versus daughter. And the events of those days are celebrated in word and song paying homage to God. Thus the darkened court, by the way, it's word and song and not any other specific actions. No lulav, no esrog, no, right? no matzah, nothing that's measured, nothing that's, because that would be written Torah. Thus the darkened courses of Israel are lit up by this message. The spiritual light of Israel will never be dimmed. And even if round about you, 
Everything becomes defiled by the oppression of the time. So long as the light remains pure within the confines of only one house or within the breast of only one man, live on joyfully amid all the wanton aberration, even die joyfully under the frenzy of a madman, for the spiritual life of Israel is saved. God watches over it, even by the light of one man, he rekindles it anew. So, that's the story of Hanukkah. That is light that is not bound in any way. Yeah. Okay, so next time, hopefully we'll meet again before Hanukkah, but this was kind of where it seemed to fit this idea of harotze b'shuva. God wants teshuva, but the activation is on our side. That this is, is it our ratzon? Is it his ratzon? Is it both? Like, and about that will, which is not defined and not bounded and limited. It's about the covenant.